You're listening to episode 17 of the Breaking Down Business podcast. Welcome to Breaking Down Business, a podcast produced on behalf of the Kent State Ambassador Crawford College of Business and Entrepreneurship by adjunct marketing instructor and CEO of All Group Marketing, Christopher Barnett. In this series, we connect listeners to our experts who share the latest on high-impact research and best practices in business. We bring relevant and timely business topics to you every other week. This is Breaking Down Business with your host, Chris Barnett. Join us for Episode 17 of Breaking Down Business as Locke Reynolds, Ph.D., Associate Professor of Economics in the Ambassador Crawford College of Business and Entrepreneurship, discusses how he uses data in the classroom, his research on wage gaps, and updates happening in the Department of Economics at Kent State. Locke Reynolds teaches and conducts research in economics. He's a labor economist by training, but has two main areas of research focus. First are his studies into higher education with a focus on student access, choices, and success. Second is his research on local economic development. Locke, it's great to have you on Breaking Down Business. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Me too. Uh, in some of our early discussions, we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Yeah, but, it's been good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But before we get there, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your academic and professional journey? Sure. Um, I actually started studying economics in high school. I took AP Micro and Macro and really found it interesting. Um, it wedded really well with some of my other interests. Uh, I was a debate nerd in high school, and I was always interested in questions around policy and, and how we can sort of fix social problems. So then I went off to college um, at Williams College and double majored in economics and Japanese, because those are the two things I had done in high school. Took a lot of math to go to grad school uh, and got my master's and PhD in economics at uh, University of Michigan, uh, where I specialized in labor economics, about work, wages, education. Uh, and then my other area was what's called public economics, which is really about government policies and uh, sort of public policy questions. Uh, and then I came to Kent in 2007, and I've been here since then in the College of Business, now the Ambassador Crawford College of Business and Entrepreneurship. Um, and uh, during that time, I've taught a, a very wide range of courses. I've taught literally every level of class you can teach from 10,000 to 80,000. So freshman to PhD, um, mostly around you know, basic economic issues and microeconomics. So introductory classes, MBA classes, uh, but labor economics, my area, as well as a lot of courses on data. Okay. Data seems to be an area that's that you focus on. And that's something that we'll get into a little bit later in the conversation. Uh, I look forward to getting there. But uh, what kind of things are you doing in, in terms of teaching at the university and with data? So uh, it, it's, it's a couple different things. So um, I was teaching, I developed uh, a course uh, we roughly call data prep, which is really about taking raw information and turning it into usable data um, and there's a lot of the decisions you have to make along that process and lots of different software you can use. Uh, I've handed that course off to someone else now, um, but uh, th that's part of the data analytics minor that, we, that I helped to build. Uh, but then I tend to have data in a lot of my classes. So next semester, I'm teaching my labor economics course, 
And we'll talk a lot about the theories and, and what the research shows around minimum wages and inequality and discrimination and, um, and all these types of questions. But I make my students do a project using data. And basically what I'll do is I will, they have to write up a report around a labor market uh, that they're interested in. It could be a geography. It could be uh, a industry. It could be uh, a demographic group. It doesn't matter to me. They propose a topic. And then what I do is I pull out of my data sources that I have um, raw data for them to work with. And they're going to have to start from. So basically, instead of them writing a report where they go on to Google and say, what's the in average income of Akron, Ohio? They need to actually go in and calculate the average income of Akron, Ohio. And once they can do that, then they can also look at stuff like What's the median income, which might not be the same as the average and what the distribution is and answer questions that you can't just easily Google. So I get my students trying, I try to get my students to do that stuff in a lot of their classes, actually. Very cool. And the benefits of that? I'm just curious. I mean, the, the main thing to the students is just the, is making them think about what data that they see out in the world. So obviously they can look things up, but thinking yeah. about what might be missing from that. Okay. In particular, so the income one is a useful one, right? That, um, you know, data is not always a normal distribution, like a bell curve. Income is right. definitely not a bell curve. It's got a whole bunch of people at lower incomes, and then it's skewed very far to the right with lots of people, with some people with very high incomes. That will pull up the average in an area, but not the median, Right. The old joke is if there's 10 people in a bar and Bill Gates walks in, the average income goes way up, <laughs> but the median right. hasn't changed. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and, and thinking about that, that's kind of important because if for some reason, let's say you were going to launch a, a new product or something and you're trying to get a sense about the geographic income distribution, you might only you might not care what the average income is. You might want to know more like that there's, let's say, 10% of the population makes more than $100,000. Well, oftentimes you won't see that in formal stats that you can Google. The data exists to find that, but you have to construct it yourself. Right. 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 Um, and so having the students thinking through, well, there's the distribution of, you know, all a mean is just a representation of a lot of data points and thinking through those data points and working with those data points and understanding uh, what it is and is not telling you, I think is extremely valuable and is something that we emphasize in our data classes. So sure. Some, something beyond just Googling something. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, very good. Well, you mentioned there something about um, your studies into wage gaps mm -hmm. and, and that type of thing and using data for that. Now, that's a, a research that you've recently done. Can you? Yeah, I've started moving a little bit more into looking at wage gaps. I mean, I've studied it in the sense that it's a large part of the literature in labor economics, so, so I'm aware of the literature, but it's not something I had looked at directly myself, particularly not um, sort of racial and gender gaps. Uh, but that's something I'm now, I've done two projects on recently and I'm doing a couple more. Um, and so really what that's doing is, is me uh, taking what I know about data and then linking up with other people who, who also know things on some of the theoretical sides more than I do, and then trying to um, combine together. So, uh, for example, 
uh, this project I was doing with one of my co-authors, uh, who's uh, Jonathan Lanning, who's at the uh, Chicago Federal Reserve Bank. Um, he is a longtime friend of mine. We went to grad school together uh, and have talked for years about research opportunities. Uh, his interest really is in racial wage gaps. Uh, that's his primary focus, discrimination and race, racism in labor markets. Uh, but he tends to approach it more from a theoretical side. Um, and my approach is more of a data side. And so we have been linking together on a couple of projects recently, um, trying to understand uh, which theoretical models around that might explain racial wage gaps make sense and in which cases they don't make sense, um, and some of the dynamics of labor markets and how various things can happen. So, for example, if you have a lot of firms, you know, going back to the idea of, of distributions, um, you know, what happens if some firms and markets are discriminatory and some firms are not, uh, and how that works out in, in the aggregate, for example. Um, and so we, we did a project together that uh, is coming out, it's forthcoming uh, sometime next year in the Journal of Labor Economics, which is sort of the top journal in the field. Um, and what we're looking at is, 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 is exactly this question about um, how the dynamics of firms and markets might, uh, and the behavior of firms and markets and their practices around wages uh, might affect the overall market. Um, and so what we do is actually a historical paper. Uh, we actually look at, focused on uh, Ford Motor Company, but not recently, more in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and the reason for that is because Ford was doing something at the time that was very different than most firms. And by being careful about the math and being careful about the data, we can use that, what they did, to try and understand how kind of one firm in a market can affect the rest of the industry. So in particular, what, was Ford, what Ford was doing was paying pretty high wages, almost double what the market was saying, um, uh, in an attempt to essentially attract the best workers. Um, and there's people have studied that before. But more importantly, at a time of, you know, uh, 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 with pervasive, pervasive uh, racism in, in that, that around the country, but particularly around Detroit, uh, Ford was paying race-neutral wages, meaning that if you had the job, you were paid the wage. And it didn't matter who you were. If you had the job, you were paid the same wage. And that was essentially unheard of at okay. the time. Um, and so what we really wanted, and so people have documented this for years, but what we wanted to think about is, well, what happens when you, this, it's an interesting sort of experiment. You have one company that is doing something different, but they're a big enough company that that can start to spill over and have dynamic, affect the dynamics of the entire industry. And that's what we wanted to study. Um, and in, the way to think about it, and to be clear, one thing that's very important here is Henry Ford was not a good human being. <laughs> and, and, and this is something we're, we're clear in the paper. I don't mean that. That's a little harsh. But um, he, he's well documented to have been a racist and an anti-Semite and a whole bunch of other things. Um, but he cared a lot about profits and he wanted to run his company as profitable as possible. So as long as you did the work, he was happy to pay you. He didn't like groups of people as a whole, 
So I don't, we don't want to come across here saying that Henry Ford should be given like an award here. But in this particular case, his, his drive to make money um, led him to a decision that was kind of unusual to pay everyone the same wage. Um, and so this is, for me, the paper was interesting because it's kind of the way, a good explanation of how economists approach problems. So on the one hand, we sort of thought through like a mathematical model, which was basically the story is very simple. We thought about if you're a worker trying to find a job in a market uh, and you know that some firms will not hire you uh, right. because of who you are, well, what's going to happen? And we can do all this math to show it. But basically, either you're going to have a hard time getting a job or to get a job, you're probably going to have to accept a lower wage. Right. right? That's just what you're going to have to do. Uh, and so this is an explanation for why we see unemployment gaps and, and, and wage gaps is this sort of discriminatory firms. And we're not saying that all of the firms are doing this, but you had a set of firms that were definitely discriminatory. And then we also posited that there's probably some other firms that were what we call strategic. They're not personally discriminatory, but they have, they get an advantage because they can pay lower wages to some people. They take advantage of the situation. Right. Like right. they're on the side. Right. Um, right. And then you suddenly have this one firm, a big firm that isn't doing any of this and is providing a, a, an equal wage. And so what we tried to do is we tried to back out, well, how much did that sort of influence the behavior of all the other firms and change the wage structure? Um, and combining together data from uh, some of the early, like the 1940 census with actual payroll records over about 25 years from Ford, um, we found that you know Ford was paying these race-neutral wages. We we can document it, um, and it seemed to decrease the wage gap between black and white workers in Detroit by about fifty percent. Okay. Oh, interesting. So that's yeah. how how one company could change the the dynamics of an industry. Yeah. Uh, by what they're doing alone. Exactly. So, like one company, if they're if it's a big enough company and they do the right thing, even though in this case it was not for the quote right reason. <laughs> Right. Right. It was for right. the, they were, but they were doing the right thing and they were a big enough and powerful enough company that they can really influence everybody else. Right. Right. Um, and it does show, you know, the, you know, uh, our college, you know, is thinking you know, about like what can business do to help solve, uh, you know, sort of social problems. And, you know, what we're documenting is that you can actually, like, one actor, one company can have an effect. Because it's not just that Ford paid equal wages, but because they paid equal wages, it, it changed the dynamics of what other firms were able to do, right? And starts to shrink some of those gaps. And so big companies have the ability to make social change if they choose to do it. And we're able to document exactly how much that was in this particular context. Right. Right. Very cool. Now, this isn't the research that you won the award, the annual Dean's Distinguished Scholar Award, is it? No, I mean, that's, no, I, yeah, so that's, it's related. Well, it's it's similar. It's in the same yeah. vein. Um, so every year there's the, uh, the Dean's Office per, has this award competition um, where faculty can submit uh, proposals for research that they want to do. Um, and uh, a committee meets and selects three finalists, and those three finalists then present their ideas to uh, the faculty, who then vote 
on uh, or rate the ideas. Um, and the winning proposal, basically all three of the finalists receive a little bit of summer funding and the winner receives the most uh, and allows you to research over the summertime. So I won the award uh, this previous summer for uh, 2021. Um, and I, I've actually, you know, it's, it's always a big honor, but I've won it in the past as well um, for other research. Okay. Uh, this one also though is with racial gaps, um, but in a more modern context, although okay. not quite modern. <laughs> um, and it's asking about sort of the opposite side of unintended consequences from the government. Um, with in particular, uh, one trend that has happened over the last 40 years or well, 50 years um, has been a change in the legal structure in the United States that has made it harder for firms to separate from workers, uh, what we call sort of employment protection. And this is really driven through the court system uh, and, and legal decisions um, at, in state, uh, state Supreme Courts. Um, and that has some interesting implications for firms hiring decisions. And so an existing research has looked at this and finds that, uh, you know, employers keep employees longer because it's harder to fire them or separate from them. Uh, but it also means they get a little bit more cautious in hiring. And for example, it can explain a pretty substantial chunk of the rise in uh, the use of contingent workers and temporary help workers because if a firm is hiring someone on a strictly um, temporary basis, then a lot of, they don't have to commit to the worker and they don't run into these problems. That's hard to separate if they end up with a bad match. Right. Um, which is, you know, the, the idea that firms cannot just get rid of workers for any reason whatsoever does benefit the workers who keep their jobs. There's uh it was actually a Supreme state Supreme court case in the 1800s. And I won't remember, I think it was Tennessee. I won't remember what the quote was, but the, it was one of these early decisions that set up the old precedent that said, basically firms should be able to fire workers for good reason, no reason, or even a bad reason. Just okay. that was the legal <laughs> precedent until about the 1970s. Wow. Um, but you have this problem, which is if firms cannot or are worried that they can't separate from workers, and you never really know when you're hiring whether or not it's going to work out, firms could get much more careful about who they hire. Um, and it can explain some potentially problematic decisions that have affected people, right? Uh, again, contingent work is great if, if it's what, you know, if it's a decision by a worker, that's what they want to do. They like the flexibility and everything else. Uh, but if some people are being held out of sort of permanent positions where they often get benefits and other stuff because firms are not willing to hire them because they're worried about <laughs> their ability to separate later, you have a problem. Right. Um, so this is an existing literature out there, but my suspicion was that this was a, going to be a bigger problem uh, for minorities or in particular, this would tend to exacerbate problems between like black and white workers. Uh, because of existing levels of discrimination that we know in labor markets and everything else. But, and that hadn't been looked at yet. So my proposal was to take some of the existing ideas, but then you know, look at the potential for these racial gaps to appear. Um, and basically the way, the way we do it is 
um, is I collected data. You know, every month the Bureau of Labor Statistics does the current population survey. It's the one where they gather data to measure the unemployment rate. But they ask lots of other questions along the way. And so what I do is about 50,000 people answer the survey each month. And then I collect all that data for every month going back to the 19, early 1970s. Okay. That's and a lot of data. <laughs> it's a lot of data. I have a lot of data on my computer. Uh, <laughs> several extra hard drives worth of data. It, that's kind of what I do. Um, <laughs> to give you a sense of how my research works. Um, and then we, then I look to see, I keep saying we, what happened is this was my idea originally. I have since connected again with my co-author from the other project and we're trying to expand on it a bit. So uh, Jonathan Landings also helping is now working with me on this project. Um, and what we try to do is we look right sort of right before and after one of these Supreme Court decisions at the state level and then see what happened to black and white employment, black and white wages. And we see that less people got hired in the year after one of these decisions. Firms got nervous about hiring, but they really got nervous about hiring black workers compared to white workers. Um, and in fact, you see also lower wages. Same kind of story as before. If you are a worker who is not getting hired, then the only way to get hired might be to accept a really bad offer. And so you start to see a wage gap. And so, and this doesn't come from, I mean, this isn't, it's coming from firms. So then firms are the ones responsible. Um, but it's because of a public, public policy kind of action to protect workers and an unintended consequences occurring. Okay. What we're trying to understand now and why I brought John on board this paper, because he, he's just better on the theory side on some of this stuff, is we can't come up with a way in which a lot of the sort of popular standard theories of discrimination really work in this context. So it's providing us an interesting kind of case study for thinking about maybe other ways in which discrimination appears. And that's where okay. the project is currently. Okay. Very good. And then when when can we look forward to reading this? Do you know? So, uh, well, I certainly don't know when it's going to get published. <laughs> the current goal <laughs> is that um, with some of the changes we've made, uh, we're hoping to put, have our uh, our manuscript done in the next, you know, I, I want it done before the start of the spring semester and then submitted to a journal. Gotcha. Depending on which journal we submit to, it can take a long time. Our, our prior paper, the one on Ford, was published, as I said, in the Journal of Labor Economics, which is the top part of the field. Uh, that paper took on and off, I think, seven years. Oh, wow. No kidding. <laughs> there, okay. was some, there was some problems along the way. Uh, <laughs> but even regardless of that, I think it has about a 5% acceptance rate. And so oh. if we start there and it takes a year for them to make a decision and then it there's a pretty good chance it won't go there. And then we just keep passing along. So gotcha. I don't think to be anything, announced. Yeah, to be announced. I'll have a working paper hopefully in the next month or so, and it'll be on my website available for people to look at. But when right. it'll be formally out is an open question. Right. Well, I'm curious, uh, if is, is there anything that you'd like to share about your affinity for data? Your data is such a big, you're just a big proponent of data analytics. And I'm uh, just curious to know if you, if there's anything you'd like to share about that. Yeah, I mean, that is the, it's what I'm good at in research, um, is trying to, is knowing what data is available and then knowing the limit of what it will 
tell us. Um, and, and my approach is to other people is often somewhat cautionary, which is that we have lots of information, but it's very easy to find a number and then run with it without really understanding what it's representing. Uh, and you have to know, like, w- where did that number come from? What we might call in technical speak, the data generating process, but it's, you know, it's like, what is it really representing? Um, And understanding that and then using that information really carefully, you can learn a lot. But if you're not careful, you can go off the rails and come to the wrong answer extremely fast. (laughs) Sure. Um, And so that's, you know, that's kind of my approach with data and with my students, which is being really careful. It, as I said, you know, going back to the example of the mean versus the median, like we're so used to thinking about averages, uh, but averages hide a lot. It hides a lot of range. And the interesting stuff might be happening away from the mean. Uh, it's possible that the mean is being affected by a s- small part of your data set. And, and being able to think through some of these things in a careful way is really important. Um, I can imagine to understand uh, what it is that you ultimately want to find out. Otherwise, I could see it's easy to rely on the data that you have available to you versus the data that you can actually uh, understand yourself. Yes, that's that's actually a really good point. So that's what some people call a convenient sample. Oh, I happen to have this data. It's conveniently available to me. Right. (laughs) Um, In a lot of settings uh in like business settings and social science settings we're not able to run experiments like the way in a lab that you might otherwise do sometimes we can um and so we have data that exists but we need to understand why it it is the way it is um i'll give you an example that really bothered me um from a couple months ago um about this there was uh as the delta variant was surging with COVID, um, right. there was a couple of studies that had really that made headlines really fast, um, particularly like in the New York Times. Um, one of which was based off of I won't remember the town in Massachusetts where there had been like a big party weekend with lots of people had shown up, and then they started reporting how many people, how many vaccinated people had caught COVID that weekend. Um, and that's an example of a convenience sample. Because really what they did was a set of people who happened to go to a party weekend is not the population. It's a subset of the population who is engaging in riskier behavior, right? Right. Because they're getting together and doing the thing that we're told not to do. Uh, And then they tracked – they didn't randomize those people. Instead what they did is they actually went into the state database. The researchers went into the state database of COVID cases and tried to look at how many of those people actually had been – it, this weekend. Okay. And so what you're getting is a very specific subsample of the population that you're studying that may not really be represented of the population and, and, in fact, very likely wasn't. And so it caused a lot of stir because there was a bunch of these people who were showing signs of catching COVID with the vaccine. And the vaccine has never, they're not, they're very, very good at yeah. limiting hospitalizations and deaths and severe cases, but you can still, it, it, it does limit your likelihood of catching COVID, but it doesn't prevent it totally. Sure. But these things got blown way out of proportion relative to what the data was really telling us, this convenient sample. Um, right. And 
this is not the time for that, for those types of misunderstandings. Yeah. Uh, But it's a very easy mistake to make. And so being really careful about understanding where the data is coming from is really important. And along with that, I would say, is that oftentimes people get very worked up or very excited about the technique they're going to do. Ooh, there's right. this new algorithm I can do. I can make the I can make the computer do this fancy new thing, uh, and I know how to do lots of fancy things. But none of those fancy things necessarily solve the underlying problems of the data. <laughs> right. You can do all the fancy stuff that you want. It's still not going to be uh, uh, well done. You, you know, here an example. Here's a bad example, but we're doing a podcast now. Right. Um, I, I might be doing a, a terrible job. You might have the best equipment in the world, but if I'm doing a terrible job as the guest, it's still going to be a <laughs> bad episode. <laughs> There's nothing right. you can do with the, in that case. Right. Um, no, no worries here today. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of thinking about like sort of through some of those issues and like what the data can really tell us and what it's really not telling us. Um, and if you don't get that right, you can go down the path of making some pretty bad um, decisions. And, sure. and we should be much more cautious about this. Right. Very cool. Well, we should probably wrap up this conversation. So I'm curious to know, or we're just running out of time. Uh, what, uh, what exciting things are you guys doing right now in the Department of Economics? Well, besides just trying to get out of the pandemic, which is the most exciting <laughs> thing that any department is doing, let's be honest, uh, back to in-person teaching and everything else that we really enjoy. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, the department is, is continuing to work on, on, on building out some additional data courses and, and having our students really work with this. So at the master's level in particular, we have a lot of courses uh, around thinking through data, not just the fancy stuff you can do, but also really what it is and is not telling you. Um, and then making some changes, you know, sort of at the talk, conversations around how we can also start to build that more and more into our undergraduate programs as well. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we serve a, a wide variety of students across our courses. And so it's always this con- question of like, how do we link this together? So, if I'm teaching my intro class that's got all the business students in it, but also has all the fashion students, and it's also got a bunch of arts and sciences students or, you know, the information uh, communication students, you know, okay, how do we make a course that works for everyone there, but then leads into these other courses for these other sets of students. Right. Uh, and so those kind of ongoing conversations are always interesting and leading to new ways of teaching classes, new ways of uh, having students work in the classroom and, and everything. So uh, we're, still, we're pushing on all that as usual. Gotcha. Very cool. Now you mentioned that you also had a part in developing the, was it the data analytics program? Yes, the, mm-hmm. Now is that where, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So that's a program and, and, and while I said I helped develop it, I should know how old it is at this point, but is at least oh. six years old. I don't quite know. <laughs> um, and so that's that was a program designed as sort of an interdisciplinary program from the start um, to try to, to work with training up students uh, outside of maybe their main discipline uh, to think about using data. And so it the idea is not to be specific to any particular applications, 
but to be much more general about what data can and cannot tell us uh, and pre preparing students to be able to have those types of deeper thoughts about information and data sources, but then also have some of the computer skills uh, ac across different software packages to try to, that would prepare them to go off and work in lots of different places to look at data. And so okay. our students do go off and, and they, a lot of them work in insurance companies and uh, the banking system. Um, but there's lots of people doing this type of work, for example, in federal and state governments, right? Uh, there's nonprofits uh, have need for data. I mean, basically, you know, about 15 years ago, the world woke up to realize that we were sitting on tons and tons of information, but didn't necessarily know what we wanted to do with it. Right. Um, and so the program is specifically designed to make people think through some of these questions, but not in any particular, we're not trying to prepare you to do this one job in the banking sector, which right. might be really interesting. Right. But we want our students to have the option to go do other things. And that's why we also reach out to other uh, departments. So we've also there's some elective courses offered uh, by lots of other departments, even outside the college, um, because data is being used by so many different areas these days. And right. people can bring different ideas and different expertise. You know, I know how to do lots of things. That doesn't mean I should teach all of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And I don't know everything. So it's trying to build out that idea of. Uh, of, of, of preparing students to, to live and work in a world of information um, and being prepared to think carefully about that. Right. Well, can you share with our listeners where they can learn more about that, where they can learn more about this program or the work that you're doing? Sure. I mean, the, the simplest way of doing it is to go to the, the website um, for the department and you can get to the, co the, the college's website at uh, www.kent.edu slash Crawford. That'll re that, um, that will get you to the college's website and then the department website is there. Uh, and there's information on the, on the department website uh, under economics for our undergrad programs um, as well as our, uh, our, our master's program and the analytics minor. And that's probably the best information. And then from there, there's contacts for various people to talk to, the department chair, the undergraduate coordinator, uh, and people can, of course, just contact me directly. My profile is up on the website and my contact information is there. Awesome. Well, thank you, Locke. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. And I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Great. Take care. Okay. Bye. I'll see you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Business. For more information on the Department of Economics at Kent State, visit kent.edu forward slash Crawford forward slash economics. Thank you for joining us for Breaking Down Business, brought to you by the Kent State Ambassador Crawford College of Business and Entrepreneurship, offering 11 undergraduate majors, a sales certificate, online and in-person MBA programs, graduate certificates, and a comprehensive PhD program. Learn more about the many ways to pursue a business education at Kent State at kentstate.edu forward slash Crawford. <laughs>